Okay, so I'll begin with a question. And the question is, should Christians spend time learning and training on ways to evangelize? What are your thoughts on that? If not, we should. Why are we doing it? I know, it's like, why are you in my classroom? If, if not. Um, you mean like in Sunday school? Well, yeah. I mean, like what we're doing right now. Okay. Let's see. Um, here's another question that, that might help inform it a little bit and guide it a little bit. Uh, think about this. Should evangelism only be an overflow of the, of the love for Christ? In other words, is it at all necessary to train in evangelism, or should it just be a natural thing, no training necessary, the spirit lives in you? You say both? Some people say both. Any other ideas? Would, I mean, what is it, Peter, they says, give a defense of your, be prepared, give a defense of your faith. Be prepared, right. Very good. Very good. Any thoughts? Okay, uh, consider these things. In today's world, there seems to be a bigger emphasis on the how-to, right, or do-it-yourself, step-by-step approach to all things, especially in the modern church, and uh, its enthronement of the pragmatic and the practical. And it's true in one sense. Uh, it's a counter-reaction to the, uh, the problem of just sort of sitting around having theoretical thought on, uh, on our theology, right, sitting around and discussing matters of salvation, um, uh, but, but never actually getting to the part of evangelism, uh, going out there in the field, spreading the good news, or even being evangelistic in your work or your area, in the, uh, in the sphere of art, in the sphere of music, in the sphere of, of anything that you might be involved in. So there is that extreme of just sort of sitting around and talking about uh, the gospel and its implications, but never actually understanding how to communicate it to the world. Many are satisfied with theology of salvation, but stay away from any standard method when it comes to taking the theology of salvation and communicating it to an unbelieving world. So again, why is it necessary to not only know the gospel, but to consider how we are to present the gospel? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, uh, The Presentation of the Gospel, states rightly that we cannot assume that those who believe the right way will necessarily present that belief in the right way. Now, how many people know people who know the word really good, but they really do bad when it comes to communicating it? Uh, and, you know, I, you know, I can often be guilty of that if, if I'm not thinking through what's the best way to uh, engage with, with people that I might interact with. So, again, uh, I'm just going to repeat his, his uh, quote. Um, he says, we cannot assume that those who believe the right way will necessarily present the, that belief in the right way. Some Christians who may be orthodox believers communicate the truth really bad. Uh, others seem to get phenomenal results, but uh, as time goes by, those results don't last. In other words, there's something wrong in their method. Um, yeah, so Lloyd-Jones explains that these two extremes... Both, both results from a gap between what a person believes and what he actually teaches. And so uh, we all need to re-examine our evangelism to make sure that we do not simply talk around the gospel. Often when you get into the conversations, you know, you have it in your heart, you have it in your mind, but what you're saying, you're sort of going around the gospel, you're using all these tactics, and you never actually get there. 
Uh, so again, we need to re-examine our evangelism to make sure that we're not simply talking around the gospel or that we're so interested in applying the gospel and seeing results that we actually miss communicating the theological content. Right? So this, is the, this balance is important and necessary if we're going to be faithful to the biblical model of evangelism. Uh, again, I, I'm not much of a fan of uh, techniques and approaches when it comes to presenting the gospel because I, I understand that in many different kinds of situations, uh, that straight, flat, uh, one way to do it often just seems awkward. It doesn't seem to apply to what maybe the person might be asking, some of their concerns, some of their misunderstandings. And so sometimes just having a flat formula and just applying it to everyone that you speak to, sometimes that doesn't work. Uh, so I'm not much of a fan of techniques when it comes to presenting the gospel. However, I am aware that there can be an unbiblical overreaction to some of these uh, method-centered evangelism approaches. You can really overreact and say, well, I don't want any kind of method. I don't even want to think about it. I just want it to be a natural you know, overflow of my heart. But again, this is why this topic is important. We don't want methodology to be the primary emphasis, but at the same time, we need to develop our practices from a biblical perspective. See, the, the thing is, we want to stay away from formulas and methods, but at the same time, there's an assumption there, right? The assumption is that the natural overflow is going to get it right, and that's, that's incorrect. The natural overflow is probably the, the worst way to evangelize because you're trusting in your own ideas and, and, and your natural inclinations. So the point is to be informed by the Bible, right? Learn the, the patterns of what you see in Scripture on how to evangelize what you see when the apostles were, were evangelizing um, and taking those truths and applying it to how we evangelize. Um, yeah, so we don't want to make methodology the primary emphasis. We want to get our ideas from the Bible. And this is what I seek to do today. Now, here's a key point. Whether you like it or not, everything you do and everything you say is a form. Okay? And what I mean by form is form as a medium or a shape or a quality that's being expressed. Think of an art form, right? Uh, there are certain kinds of art form. And art is, uh, is, is a medium in which you are able to express yourself or express a worldview, and it's communicated through an art form. Uh, and again, uh, whether you like it or not, everything you do, right, externally, everything you say is communicated in a form. You do it in a certain manner, whether you are conscious of it or not. Even when you do or say something spontaneously and sincerely, it is always expressed in a form, whether you're conscious of it or not. So think about it. The way that you laugh, uh, the way that you smile, the way that you speak, the way that you listen, the way in which you get angry, and even the way that you get sad, it's all expressed in a form. Okay? Now with that in mind, you ought to know that the belief that forms don't matter, just content matters, forms don't matter, that's a myth. That's, that's not true. It's incorrect to assume that the method in which we communicate has no significance at all or value, but rather the content is what really matters. It's a myth. We forget that the way in which something is communicated also says something about what is being communicated. Form and content both 
have content. You get it? Form and content have, both have content. They communicate something. The question should always be, well, what am I communicating in both form and content? Always think about those two, those two things. How am I communicating? What am I communicating? In the way I communicate and what I communicate in content. Uh, for example, there's a reason why in a funeral you normally don't hear the melody of the happy birthday song, right? You don't go to a funeral and they're playing hmm, 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 hmm. It's inappropriate, right? There's a reason why in a birthday party you wouldn't normally hear funeral music, right? Sad funeral music in a birthday party, except for my birthday. Um, there is such thing as appropriate. Right? There is this thing as appropriate forms and methods that are true to the content itself. This is why it's important not only to think through biblically what the gospel is, but also to think through biblically how we are to communicate the gospel personally to people. The Bible must inform us on what is the appropriate way of communicating God's truths to all kinds of people. There are different kinds of people out there, right? We have to think about, uh, we have to consider those things when we approach people with the gospel. Now, if you can stop and think for a few seconds on what would be the most inappropriate way to communicate the gospel, don't think too long on it, but just imagine something, uh, just a really inappropriate way to communicate the gospel. If you can think of something, that means that it exists, right? And someone out there is probably doing it that way. And, and, and considering that, we must think seriously about the method and the form on how we share the gospel from a biblical perspective. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why this, this class is important. Forms do matter. Okay? With that said, I want to consider two points, and you'll see it on the handout. Uh, point number one, that says different people in different places. I'm going to talk about the dynamic of... Uh, engaging with different kinds of people with different backgrounds. And the second point is uh, conversation with a direction. Okay, I'll talk about that. So the first point is different people, different places. So I want us to begin by considering the fact that there are many different people in the world with many different backgrounds that we find in many different places. And even though the people and places are different, Guess what doesn't change? The message. The message, amen. The gospel still remains the same. Uh, it says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So God's word is unchangeable. Right? It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. The message that God has is an unchangeable message that has transcended from centuries and centuries of, of different kinds of people, and it applies to us in the same way. Now, with that in mind, even though the message never changes, we can see, even in Jesus' approach, that Jesus communicated appropriately according to the person and according to the situation. Let's look at some of the examples of the greatest teacher of all time, which is Christ himself, the greatest evangelist. Can someone read this passage? Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. <clears throat> Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. 
because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Oh, my bad. <laughs> so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it to the poor. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek to save the lost. So, what can we learn from Jesus in this situation? Interestingly, uh, Jesus had a crowd around him. We'll see that in verse 3. Uh, and in the previous chapter, right, right before this passage, we see that Jesus had just finished healing a man of blindness. And so the crowd developed around him with people who were probably amazed by Jesus and his power. Yet, being that Jesus was passing through Jerusalem to Jericho, it was in the custom of the people to see someone, like a blind man, as an unclean person or a sinner. Now, one can only imagine the mixed feelings that uh, they had for Jesus healing a blind man. They probably thought, what is he doing messing with an unclean person? But they still followed him. You see that he had a crowd even when he was walking through uh, Jericho. Uh, but when it came to Zacchaeus, right, we see in verse 7 that they all grumbled, saying, he has gone in to be a, a guest of a man who is a sinner. In other words, Jesus was not seen in good light for having mercy with sinners and hanging out with Zacchaeus. Yet, by verse 9, we see that Zacchaeus comes to receive salvation. He says, Today salvation has come to this house since he also, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. And we know from Galatians 3.29 that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, he evangelized to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus came to Christ. So here we see an example of Jesus reaching out to someone, considering the person and the place. Right? He stood over his house. Now what stands out the most is verse 1. Uh, let me back it up so you can see verse 1. Right? It says here, he entered Jericho and was passing through. In other words, Jesus was able to minister on his way to somewhere else. He was on his way somewhere else. And passing through, he led someone to himself. We should look at Jesus as an example of having a lifestyle of evangelism and being ready to share with anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, like Will said in 1 Peter 3.15 to be ready to give reason for the hope that is in you. And Jesus did just that. Now let's look at another example of Jesus interacting with others. Consider how Jesus confronts a different kind of people. He begins to confront religious leaders. You notice a very different tone, right? Let's look at this verse. Uh, let's see. John 3, 1 through 21. Can someone read that whole passage? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher 
But you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to them, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Oh. <laughs> Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered them, Are you the teacher of Israel, and sorry, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but we do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may, enter, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness, rather than the light, because this, their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. I want to back it up a little bit. Um, I just love the way Jesus took that conversation, and he went straight to the gospel. Um, I'm going to leave this up here. I'm going to talk about it. Um, what's obvious and what's interesting is that Jesus spoke much more sternly with the religious people, right? He, he, he's not speaking the same tone that he spoke to with uh, other, people's, other people that he uh, crossed path with. Um, and, and he does this because the religious leaders are being held at a higher standard, right? These are people who know the law, know the book, uh, they teach it, right? The Pharisees, right, uh, as you know, often imposed regulations on their followers that were unscriptural and in many ways abusive. However, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he didn't just generalize words, right? He didn't just speak, oh, you and you people, right? He spoke directly to this person. Uh, he really drove it home. You'll notice that this Pharisee began his conversation with Jesus in a way that may seem like he was a nice guy, right? Uh, saying something nice about Jesus. Let's look at it. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, right? This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, I'm sorry, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Uh, so it seems like he's saying nice things to Jesus, right? He's not saying anything wrong. The Pharisee states that he knows that Jesus is from God, because no one can do the signs that Jesus has done, if not that God were with him. Yet, Jesus sees through this, right? Jesus understands that the Pharisee was not complimenting him, right? 
The Pharisee was there as a representative of the highest order of the leaders of Israel, a man of theological knowledge, a teacher of the law. Okay? He was part of the Sanhedrin, which was like the equivalence of a senator in the United States today. Yet, the comment that Nicodemus makes was not a compliment, but rather a theological comment intended to communicate that any approval that counted were approvals made by the Pharisees. In other words, he was, he was sharing his theological thoughts about Jesus as a way to say, you know, I recognize you, I recognize you, rabbi, he calls him a rabbi. Um, and he, he compliments him in a sense, but this, this, this phrase, these words that he says to him is a way to show that, hey, by the way, any theological authority is coming from me. So, you know, if you want to join the club, you can join the club, but the club is over here and not over there. Okay, the Pharisee uh, says what he says, and Jesus sees right through that. Uh, he even goes as far as calling him rabbi. But Jesus chose not to go with the flow of the conversation with Nicodemus, right? Notice how Jesus took the conversation and redirected it back to the core issue. And I know when you evangelize or you speak to people who are in higher authorities, again, we ought to respect them. But often, the conversation goes somewhere else, right? They begin to talk about other things, and it's important that we bring it back to the core issue, right? Speak to the heart of the person. And Jesus was able to see, you know, what was the core issue behind that statement. Uh, the core issue was that Nicodemus, as a religious leader and a teacher of the scriptures, was, in fact not a real teacher of the kingdom of God in reality, right? He wasn't teaching the kingdom of God. He was teaching the kingdom of man. And that if, if Nicodemus is not born again, he too will not see the kingdom of God. Even him as a Pharisee, as a teacher of the law, he is not going to see the kingdom of God if, he doesn't, if he's not born again. I love when Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? You see, you see the, uh, the, the expectation from a religious leader. They should know this. They teach it from the pulpit. They teach it from Scripture. And yet they are teaching false uh, doctrine. So again, we see that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus appropriately, recognizing the uh, role of Nicodemus and his responsibility in society. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. This doesn't mean that we, as Christians, ought to be a people who are constantly calling out leaders, right? However, there may be times when we may see pastors or, uh, or Christian pastors who sharply rebuke other pastors for teaching false doctrine, um, and they do it out of love for the sake of protecting their sheep, right? But this is the key issue for us as Christians. The key issue is to know who and when it is appropriate to do this, right? We can go the other extreme often. Many of us have seen this type of thing go really bad, right? When, you know, that one Christian who's calling out everybody. Um, way too often in churches you'll see one or two divisive individuals who love the activity of calling out error in other people's lives. They're not hard to find, right? It's re really easy to spot these kind of people. They saw way too many YouTube clips of their favorite preacher yelling from the pulpit rebuking false teachers that they get fired up and ready to go to their own church and let their own brothers and sisters have it. They, in their own minds, assume that they're filled with holy zeal, yet in reality are impatient people 
who lack trust in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's work in the body of Christ. They are discontent with the ordinary means of grace and are always looking for a better church and sometimes always looking for a better pastor. And the curse of this is that they'll probably be church hopping for the rest of their life. And that's, that's very unfortunate and very sad. We must pray and allow God to help us through his word to give us wisdom on how to approach different people from different places, of course, with the unchanging message of the gospel, right? Firm on the gospel, but understanding who, where, context, place, person, considering all these things so that we honor God uh, in the best way possible with the message. With that said, we see that Jesus was able to discern the different places, different people, and different backgrounds. Jesus spoke to strangers in a certain way. And we see uh, the remarkable story in John 4 of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. You guys remember that? Jesus broke through many cultural and even religious barriers of the day to engage in a discussion with this one woman, uh, never condescending, but rather asking her for help. <laughs> Right? He said he was thirsty and he asked her for water. See all the wisdom in Jesus when he approaches people. And I love it when he takes that conversation and he brings it into a discussion of real spiritual matters. He never manipulates her nor compromises the truth. He's patient. Yet he, is, he exposes unspoken needs and he speaks to her conscience. And in the end, he reveals himself as her Messiah. Now, all of us have relationships with others, and, and these relationships fall into different kind of categories. I'm going to show you the types of relationships that we have with people. The first one is long-term, intimate relationships, right? We have family and close relatives where we have a sense of responsibility with them. We, you know, uh, it's a different kind of relationship than, than with people that we don't know. The second one is long-term acquaintances, right? So they're close, but uh, still distant, right? Some relatives, neighbors, peers, and people from work. Number three, short-term intimate, right? These are friends, business associates, and you go in and now you clock in and out with them, and that's it. And then short-term acquaintances, which is uh, probably the people that we would run into when we're evangelizing in the park or people who we knock on the door and, and just try to share the good news with them, right? These are strangers or people that we meet passing by. Each one of these kinds of people, they're, they're, if they're different, should have a different uh, approach because you have to consider um, what are some of their misconceptions, what are some of the things that they might already know, what are some of the things that they need to know more about, right? Some people know uh, because they were born in America, they were born here in a, uh, you know, somewhat Christian culture where, where Amer America seems to be a place where pe uh, people just go to church. And so a lot of times, you know, they're very familiar with some of the things that we believe, whether they believe it or not. Uh, and so depending on the person that you're talking to, sometimes the emphasis on one area needs to be made, you know, more than the other. And so just considering all those things um, is the way that we know and we see Jesus acting with certain people. So uh, those are all the different uh, kind of relationships that we have. The approach will be different. A good example, uh, just to give you sort of an example for me and my wife's uh, experience, has been our relationship with our parents. Both my wife and I 
have had conversations with our parents about the gospel, but what I've noticed in my approach is that I had often forgotten who I'm speaking to. Uh, my approach should not be the same as if I were speaking to a stranger who may be hostile, hostile or violent to God's word. Uh, nor am I speaking to my parents in the same way I would if I were doing open-air preaching. I'm not just going to go in the kitchen and just start um, you know, yelling the law. When my mom is just sitting there with, her, with the cup of coffee. You're going to hell. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm going to sit there and have a conversation because this is the woman that fed me when I, you know, I had no food. And, you know, she, she provided for me when I couldn't. So, considering all these matters, I'm not going to go in the kitchen and yell the law. Uh, but again, my approach is going to be different. Uh, instead, when, when, when considering my relationship with my parents, I had to take into account their God-given place in my life, Right? And often, instead of a clear discussion on the gospel, some of the things that I might have said might have been perceived by my parents as an accusation that they didn't raise me right. And that's not what I was trying to communicate. You, you want to think through you know, who you're talking about. And the goal is not to be manipulative. The goal is to be clear. Right? We want a clear presentation of the gospel. And so uh, it's not trickery. I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, that's this kind of person, so you want to say it this way. No, it's, it's, the goal is clarity. We want to present a clear gospel presentation where they're not misunderstanding anything. And so that's the reason why we consider who they are and where they're from and what relationship we have with them. Um, there's a principle that I, I, I like to tell myself um, or, or remind myself of that I find in 1 Timothy 4.12. Uh, Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And again, I say principle, not direct application of this verse, because we know that this is speaking to uh, elders, right, or Timothy specifically. But uh, being, being that he was young. Uh, but I think of myself as a young person in my relationship with my, my, my parents or grandparents. Um, and just by looking at this verse and seeing the principle behind it, how much an example in speech is valuable in our efforts of evangelism. My conduct, those are things that are very valuable uh, in reaching someone, especially people who are very close to you, they know your background, um, you can't fool them with your theology. They want to see speech, conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Um, again, this is the form in which we ought to communicate especially to those who are older than us, and especially to parents and any kind of long-term intimate relationships that we may have. Being an example is a big key. Okay, see how much time we got left. Okay, uh, let's look at the second point. Conversation with a direction. Let me take a drink. So the second point, conversation with a direction. In this point, I want to talk about the practical aspects of, of conversation. But uh, before we get into um, how to communicate, I think it's important that we remember a few things that should inform and encourage us uh, when we get into conversations in, in our efforts to evangelize. The first thing I want to mention is the importance of having a big view of God. Having a big view of God will help to increase your courage to share the good news to strangers. Right? Look at this verse here. This one helps me a lot. There you go. John 8, 31, 32, which says, So Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
I think, I think about that. And what it's saying is God's truth is setting people free, okay? Free from what? Think about it. Free from sin. Free from God's punishment of sin, which we all deserve. Uh, and as we zoom in closer to the earthly realm, right, your everyday life, we can all testify to the levels of slavery that the gospel has freed us from, right? Bad thinking, wrong way of viewing the world. That, that's freedom that we have as Christians that ought to motivate us to, to want other people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, my favorite is the freedom to approach my God and have communion with him in a way that's impossible apart from the saving power of the gospel. One of the key things for me is like how good it is to be a believer, how good it is to have communion with God, how good it is to, be, to have a light switch turned on and I see the world in, in the way that it was intended to see. Right? Not perfectly, but slowly. God is renewing my mind, and that's such a blessing. Um, and then having that communion with my brothers and sisters in Christ, who we share in this uh, glorious good news, right? We come together, we worship. These are experiences that I love, that I can't live without. Uh, and, and these are things that I want other people to, to have. Um, another thing that is important to keep in mind is the very fact that Jesus is Lord. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This truth, what we're going to read here, uh, it should inform you on the truth that we stand on, right? This is, this is what we stand on when we evangelize, right? What does it say? Can someone read it? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So we, we're familiar with the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, etc., etc. But notice how it says, therefore, go, therefore. Therefore, what's, what's therefore, therefore? Uh, well, you look at the verse before it. <laughs> Jesus came and said to them, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and preach the gospel. In other words, we stand on that truth, right? That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, to Christ, right? This means that we don't have to worry about being timid and speaking God's word in the public square. If Jesus Christ is truly Lord and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, this means that God's truth is higher than any other claim. Seriously. The intimidation that the world out there can often uh, press on Christian, uh, on, on many of us, their intimidation is based on sinking sand. It's not based on reality. It's not based on truth. I don't have to walk in my job, right, or in a restaurant or in downtown Church Street or in any public place with fear that the real world is out here, out there. And my little religion is a lesser reality. And the real world is out there. That's false. The real world is not out there. Reality is defined by God. And this reality is not only a suggestion that we offer the world. as a possible alternative, right? We're not giving them, hey, consider an alternative way of living. No. This is an obligation that's placed on every single individual out there by God. In other words, your boss, right? <laughs> My boss the owner of the businesses out there, the writers of the magazines that you may read, 
the doctors, the workers of our city, each and every one of those people and their children have an obligation mandated by God to repent from their sins and believe in the gospel just like us. In other words, we don't have to walk into this realm in, in the world and say, well, you know, we have this good news, um, you know, and, and, and sort of have this competitive uh, idea that, well, you know, we're competing with their ideas. No, God's truth trumps their truth, right? Everything that the world believes, if you follow the logic, if you follow the, the rationality, always ends in contradiction, in idolatry, in slavery. There's only one truth out there that is consistent and doesn't lead to slavery or self-indulgence, and it's the gospel, it's the truth of God. And everyone's obligated to respond. Now, oftentimes, we believe this, but we live with fear that the world's ways, their ideas, their ways are triumphant, as if all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to the world. But we see that scripture teaches otherwise. Even though it may be hard sometimes, let's let this passage, right, keep that in mind. And let's let that passage remind us of who really sits on the throne, who really is in control, not only of the church, but the earth. I'll continue. With that said, I want us to think about practical ways of evangelism and conversation. And, and we're coming to a close here. Uh, there are many ways that we can approach someone with the gospel. Uh, but I'm just going to share one of, one of the ways. There's, because time limits me, I'm just going to share one. Uh, this one way is called a conversation with the direction. This is sort of a method of approach. Many Christians have a hard time, and if you're like me, in personal evangelism because sharing, you know, quote-unquote, religious ideas in a conversation seems unnatural and, and forced, right? It's like, you know, one minute you're talking about baseball or something, and then you say, I got to tell you something, you know, you're a sinner, and it, you just feel like you're intruding the conversation. It's like coming out of nowhere. Um, and so a bad way is like you come into a gathering, and you're just hanging out, everyone's just relaxed, uh, unbelievers everywhere, you're trying to play it cool, and um, you're trying to find a way to, you know, get in there and evangelize. And you're thinking about it so much that it's like, well, I got to do it before I go. It's hitting nine o'clock, so you just say, "Hey guys," and you know, they just thought you were this cool guy who hangs out at the bar, and then all of a sudden, say, "Hey guys, thanks for the uh, thanks for the chips. Uh, repent and believe." And you know, all of a sudden, you're intruding, <laughs> and which is fine. The the problem is you see where it kind of seems unnatural a little bit. You're kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, they said, well, that was a surprise. Um, so just thinking through on ways that we can converse and, and it, it'd be something natural, something honest uh, when we present the gospel and something that doesn't seem forced. Um, by the way, th the reason why it seems forced is because we often compartmentalize the gospel in our thinking. What it means to compartmentalize is to place Christianity and the gospel in like a mental compartment in your thoughts, separate from other things like you do with work, right? You have these categories in your head. You have work, family, children, and then you have the gospel over here. So you're over here talking about family, and then you say, by the way, uh, you know, you're a sinner and you need to repent. It feels like an intrusion rather than something natural. Uh, and that's why, it fe that's why it's awkward when we do it. Uh, but uh, the, the, problem with, the problem with that is the assumption that Christianity and the gospel are separated from all of life. Right? And when we think that way, the gospel then seems like an intruder in the conversation that we have. But the solution 
is to recognize first that Christianity and the gospel has something to say about every aspect of life. You could be talking about sports, and there's many implications uh, or connections that the gospel has in relation to sport, activity, pleasure, things of that nature, where you can drive that conversation and relate it to uh, theology. Um, so again, the gospel has something to say about art, something to say about beauty, something to say about politics and the things about society. The gospel has something to say about family and marriage. Uh, in my experience, when uh, I was getting married, I was, I was uh, engaged with my wife, and we were in the process of getting married. Everyone was like, oh, you're getting married. Uh, you ready for the, you know, the ball and chains? You're ready for all this uh, stuff. You know, they're bringing their ideas of what they think marriage is. And they knew I was getting married soon. And I said, this is a perfect opportunity because marriage <laughs> is a picture of the gospel. And I, I'm ready to, you know, I'm ready to let you guys have it. So I was, <laughs> I, I, was, I was ready to tie all these things that they were throwing at me and just make a difference in, in, in their worldview of marriage. And so that, that's one way that I was able to sort of bring the gospel in my workplace. Uh, again, so as Christians, we must learn to think holistically about the gospel and its implications in all of life. Right, so the question then is, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we as Christians bring our biblical worldview and share the gospel more naturally in our conversations? Uh, in a dialogue, we must learn to move right, from the common interests. Right? We're talking about uh, restaurants that we like to go to. Uh, and bring it to more abstract levels of thinking uh, and eventually take that conversation and bring it to a, a theological discussion, a gospel discussion. So here's an example of that conversation. Do I have it up here? Nope. Nope. Okay. Not yet. Um, the non-Christian would say, right? This, this is a conversation. I'm going to read a script. Okay. Pretend, you know, non-Christian and Christian are having a conversation. So non-Christian says to the Christian, he says, well, I finally decided I'm going to major in art. He tells me this, right? And then me as a Christian, I say, great. What made you finally decide on that? And uh, the non-Christian says, well, I feel it's the best way to fulfill myself and to bring more beauty into the world. Right? This is a non-Christian speaking. And so the Christian says, hmm, that's, that's interesting. Why do you suppose you have a desire to make beautiful things? And the non-Christian says, hmm, that's a hard question. But I know how much I enjoy the feeling that I have when I make something new and beautiful. And so the Christian responds, yeah, I feel, the, I feel that same way sometimes. I'm sure that's why I write poetry. Uh, do you ever wonder if this striving to make beautiful things means anything? I mean, that it might be an indication of some higher reality beyond the physical world, right? And the non-Christian says, you mean like God? I think about that sometimes, but I just don't know, right? I think somebody must have designed beauty in nature. There you go, you're, you're getting into, it's progressing into a theological discussion. And then the Christian says, hmm, that sure makes more sense than everything uh, just happening by chance. You know, God didn't make much of a difference in my life until I understood that he was a creator who, and then you get into, the, you know, a discussion about creation, about the fall, about redemption in Christ, things like that. Uh, so you see, uh, you can take any kind of conversation, regardless of what it is. And, and this should be a, like a homework, kind of. Uh, think about any random subject on how it relates to the gospel, how it relates to creation, how, how it relates to God. 
um, and see if you can practice on carrying that, that uh, conversation in a natural way uh, to point to the gospel. Okay, uh, let's see, time. Okay, uh, finishing up here. In, uh, in this dialogue example, right, the basic belief behind the Christian's questions are, right, God is infinitely creative, God is the source of beauty, God created people in his image, and therefore we share God's creativity and yearn for beauty. Uh, and that's the way that he made that connection with the person he was conversating. And that was just an example of a, a developing conversation uh, from a common interest to applying it to theological truths. I want to show you a chart. I think it's on your uh, handout. Let's put it up here just in case. But here's a chart that expresses this concept. Right? Uh, you see A, right? area of interest, art and beauty, whatever the topic is that the person may be interested in, that you have a common interest in. You begin there, and that's sort of the outer circle, right? common interest. B, uh, you get to an immediate question, why do you feel the need to be creative? Right? Then you go one layer in the conversation. C, abstract question, it says, why is man creative? That's another abstract question that'll bring you closer to this topic of, of God. D, you, you give your explanation of, you know, you let them, you ask them the question, you let them answer whatever their thoughts are, and you come in and you bring a more sound biblical explanation. Um, because that always ties it closer to the goal, right? The D says, Christian explanation, man is created in God's image, reflecting his creativity and beauty. Um, and then E, that's where you apply theological truths. He says, God is the creator of man, and he wants us to acknowledge him as the source and fulfiller of our good desires. Um, and again, that's, that's the goal, to take our conversations and lead them to the point where we can apply the gospel and spiritual truths. Uh, in conclusion, uh, I'm hoping that this discussion that we just had about evangelism, I'm, I'm hoping that you notice the very necessary element behind every good uh, and effective evangelistic method, and that necessary element is you as evangelists or you as Christians who evangelize must be saturated in the word of God, right? This is, this is how you're able to learn how to apply God's creation. Um, use it in your conversation and, and bring it back to the gospel. Jesus was that way. Jesus knew the word. Jesus was the word. Um, he took every conversation and applied it to um, himself, really, right? He is the gospel, uh, likewise, we are to be saturated with the word of God in our minds and in our hearts. When the Bible takes a hold of your mind, your worldview is shaped by scripture and your heart is captivated by God's truth. And when, when you're saturated to that level, you'll find it very difficult. This is the other extreme. You'll find it very difficult to leave conversations without getting that one hint of the gospel in there. I, I, I remember like leaving gatherings with family and friends and, and driving like, man, I almost had that one. And I, I, you, you feel that, you know, you don't want to leave the conversation without throwing that one, you know, dart in there. Um, and so that, that's what happens when you saturate your mind and, and then you're convinced that God's truth tr trumps any other worldview. It really does. Um, and you can examine that for yourself. Just, just follow the consistency and the, the, uh, just, the, just the, all of, of the counsel of God and how it applies to all of life um, it is nothing like it. It doesn't compare to anything out there, any ideas out there. Uh, with that in mind, uh, I want to conclude with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones again. 
uh, regarding scripture and evangelism. He says, and I quote, if you want to be able to present the gospel and the truth in the only right and true way, you must be constant students of the word of God. You must read it without ceasing. You must read what I call biblical theology, the explanation of the great doctrines of the New Testament, so that you may come to understand them more and more clearly. The work of this ministry does not consist merely in giving our own personal experiences or talking about our own lives or the lives of others, but in presenting the truth of God in a simple and clear uh, manner as possible. We must make time to equip ourselves for the task, realizing the serious and terrible responsibility of the work." End quote. Uh, and to that, I say amen. Uh, I think he nailed it there. Uh, any thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, George. Sorry, I'm always having No, I love it. Are you kidding me? Um, these, these layers are so important, and it, it is so right to go from the natural to the spiritual, and sometimes it's not that easy. Sure. And we may miss a step or get sloppy in certain areas. I'm guilty of that as a charge, but the end result has to be where um, a lot of people know the quote from Jesus in John 3 where it says, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Right. And we have to guard our hearts because we're not out to condemn the world. Right. But if you read out, it says, because they stand condemned already. That's right. Our responsibility is to show them gently, not to be quick to show them the mirror. So, you see? Right. But to gently bring that mirror up and slowly show them yeah. their condition. Right. As Jesus did, asking questions is always a good way. Yeah. It comes out of them. Right. And now you're not condemning them. You're That's not right. showing them they're sinners. They're letting you know they're right. sinners. Yeah. So it's, it's important for us to know that, you know, we're not out to condemn. That's right. We have to show them in a gentle and loving way that right. they are condemned. Yeah. And we all need to say... Amen. That reminds me of what Pastor Jack has been preaching uh, through Ephesians, just about uh, recalling where we come from, uh, and just having that humility when we come and approach other people, knowing that we too would have been lost if it wasn't for evangelism and, and the Spirit mm -hmm. saving us. So mm -hmm. that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, brother? I was just thinking about what you uh, in initially you were talking about. Um, basically, you were assuming that, or, or you're assuming that, got uh, logic into without using any scriptures. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with you, mm -hmm. but you were assuming like um, talking about the uh, funeral and the birthday. Mm -hmm. You assume logic, and I think God also assumes and encourage. Uh, encourages to use logic mm -hmm. in the scriptures and when yeah. presenting it and I think a lot of people overlook that yeah. um, when you're evangelizing mm -hmm. um, you'll find that people don't need their responses people don't use logic right. I was actually thinking about that the last few weeks is mm -hmm. I think about debates I've had with people like years ago right. still and um, I don't think people use a, a lot of logic. Yeah. So when you have that logic on your side, mm -hmm. I find that when you, if you say, if you ask why they believe it right. several times over, mm -hmm. it comes down to the root of why they believe what they believe. Yep. And it basically tears their argument down. That's right. So mm -hmm. I believe it because my parents did it or whatever. Yep. Absolutely true, and you make, you make a good point about logic. Logic uh, is a law that is, doesn't belong to 
philosophers, it belongs to God. Uh, it's when we speak truth and we're consistent with, with reason. Again, we know that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel itself. Uh, but when we have serious conversations with people and, and, and our, what we're communicating to them is consistent um, and, and we're calling them to be consistent as well, those are rules that belong to God. They don't belong to the philosophers or the, uh, those are things that can only actually, in fact, those are things that can only exist if God is presupposed, you know? Um, because laws about logic and laws about reason, uh, what it presupposes is that there's such thing as order, right? There's such thing as step-by-step -step order and ways that we can accomplish a, a final uh, conclusion of truth. Mm -hmm. And that presupposes uh, a God who, uh, mandates these kind of things, right? Uh, without, without this concept of God, uh, all these other ideas fall apart. So all these things can be used in our, in our conversations, uh, always trusting in the gospel as the power unto salvation, uh, but we, we call any other person to be consistent the way that they would call us to be consistent. And uh, in, the end, in the end of the story, uh, it's exposed that they're not consistent. Right? Because the truth belongs to God. The truth is found in the Word. And so that's a good point, brother. Appreciate that. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let me get that for you. Um, I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. The presentation of the gospel. You have, you have it written? Presentation of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Anyone else? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, just uh, this time where we can gather and talk about these truths. Um, we thank you for reminding us of your commission that you've given to your church. And we praise you that you have given us wisdom on how to do as you commanded. We see ultimate wisdom in the person of Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom itself. And from him, we desire to learn of his ways, especially in this topic of evangelism. So God, we ask you to let us not only obey you in content, but also in form. We seek to be a light in this world in the areas where you've placed each one of us. Help us to be faithful. We desire that many would come to know about your grace, Lord. And we thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all. You're welcome. You're welcome.